responsibility. Christianity is not a religion of prescriptions, but of a okay, living relationship with Bibles Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians. This, of course, Colossians does not mean that once two. we are in Christ, everything is permissible. We're continuing that would amount to moral and spiritual Colossians, and we a thing contrary <coughs> to the very nature of new life in Christ. In Colossians, it does mean that the controls of the Christian life spring from within. That genuine piety I'll grows out of inward conviction generated by a conscience, sake of consciousness of union with Christ. Colossians chapter two verse thirteen. It's in a sense saying. I, and I've you, been made alive in Christ, dead in your I've been born in the uncircumcision of your in flesh. Christ, he is God he made alive together. Regenerated with my heart. I am having forgiven us all him. our trespasses by canceling so the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. How can I do something that would this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That, that's the principle. He disarmed the rulers the and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What is most profitable? Therefore, not the rules, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard and to, there, a, there is a, sense to that a festival or a new some. moon or a Sabbath. And that's where it gets hard. These are a shadow of the things to come. There's but the also substance a, a logic of Christ, religion, the inference let of no one disqualifies doing this thing on a spiritual, not doing this in worship of angels, sinning, going on in detail about vision, follow this person and you'll be holy. sensuous mind. Follow this person and not holding fast to the head. You know, from whom the whole body uh, and, nourished and, and knit together through its joints and ligaments. There's a whole lot of truth in that. Grows with the growth that is from God. Because if with Christ you, you died to the elemental to spirits the of the world, of why, as, as if you were still Timothy, alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? To imitate do not handle those faithful leaders above us touch. in Hebrews 13, 7. Referring to things that all perish as they are but used. But we will only grow in Christ's likeness as much as they are like These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. We are commanded to be and severity to, to the body. Alone. But there are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And even my role as a pastor and as Heavenly a shepherd Father, is to these are continually point you to Christ, not to myself. These are good not words. The Christ and is the standard. For some of us, they can be cutting words. As one pastor said, eat the meat and spit out the because bones. Because we are prone to focus there's, on there's a lot. Of, you know, there's a lot of good on faithful believers works that we can follow, that we can imitate their faith. The, there's Probably Internal something within all of us that we could imitate. Holiness that, that is begins good. in the heart. But also within every one of us, there's things Lord that are help bad. us to that we should glean imitate. from these words, to understand so them, we have to, to continually apply them to our lives. Continue to look at Christ. Please help me. Pray Christ that he even said about the religious teachers, he said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Your people. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. One of the great heroes of, the, of our Protestant heritage. See, people follow a preacher or a teacher also or a professor so closely that their manner of the Protestant Reformation start to sound This man, like he lived a good part of his life. And, and surely life, there's a lot of Roman good Catholic priest and teacher. More specifically, as a Roman Catholic monk. In fact, many of the, the Baptist leaders throughout the Reformation were priests and monks. He said this, even today, and that was 1931. He said, men are finding that the noble prohibition law needs enlightened instruction um, to make it effective for all of them. Talking about not only left the Roman Catholic Church because of its unbiblical doctrines that is true and teachings, of all which they were, the Pharisees, Essenes, Gnostics made piety hinge on outward observance and truly rules, but 
They also left inward apostate church and protested nearly everything they did and stood for because of its unbiblical practices. As every father or mother knows, such as though we must have some regulations in family and state and church, selling of indulgences, they are not enough of themselves. Practices such as the veneration of relics and icons that we can't statues go to the one extreme of antinomianism and licentiousness and just throw out all the rules and regulations, all the laws, and just have chaos and disorder. Pieces of the cross. But at the same time, and, uh, the legalism, a bone of, the uh, strict rules and so regulations, and, so, and, and uh, following lists you know, is, is not going to make us one whole. person of that era said um, during that time there was we enough that pieces conviction, of the cross desire to be in Europe to build a to ship. serve Christ to honor Christ. <laughs> and it, the so relics, in this passage, it, it, we see the true. incompatibility of human um, religion with true because that's what religion. they were all about. We see the injunctions of human religion and all the laws. That were most are, are, prevalent foisted upon us like and we foisted upon others, sometimes on We see the inferences of human this, religion, says, the logic. Luther was extraordinarily successful. And finally, we as see a monk. the impotency. He plunged into religion. prayer, fasting, and asceticency of human religion. Going without sleep, enduring bone chilling cold without mm. a blanket, and flagellating. These have himself. indeed an appearance of wisdom and as he later self-made religion. If anyone could have been severity to heaven. But they the are of no value in stopping the he indulgence he could do of the as flesh. A monk. He was very disciplined. Very all uh, our rules and lists and standards cannot ultimately stop the indulgence of, food of the flesh. The comforts of this because we we may trade one idol of substance abuse or this of immorality for the idol says, of during his early years. Whenever and Luther pride and read what would leader. become the famous Reformation text, Romans one seventeen, and, and then. You know, sin His has eyes a way were drawn sin, not to sin. the word faith, but to the word and righteous. If you're, you're going to who, after all, could live one, by faith, in sin but in those who are already that, that righteous. Open up the door to another. The text was clear on the matter: the righteous shall live by faith. Luther remarked, "I hated that word regulations. The righteousness the of God, can't throw them all out. by which I had been taught, according to the custom and use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner." The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous, and he knew it. During his lectures on the Psalms in 1513 and 1514 and a study of the book of Romans, he began to see a way through his dilemma. He comments, at last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. He was born again. And he understood the gospel after many years of studying the Bible, of being taught in um, monasteries. He finally understood the truth that the righteous shall live by faith. That is, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. Luther would later comment on his life as a monk by saying, this is the chief abomination of monasticism. We had to deny the grace of God and put our trust and hope in our holy monkery and not in the pure mercy and grace of Christ as we had promised and begun to do in Christian baptism, which really wasn't Christian baptism at that time, um, for relying on works in order thereby to be justified and sanctified is in reality denying God's grace. 
As St. Paul clearly says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the works of the law are fallen from grace. It's Luther's comment on the, the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church and the true gospel of the Bible. And it's been said by many preachers and evangelists before that there's really only two religions in the world. The religion of human works and the religion of divine grace or biblical Christianity. And yet, even within biblical Christianity and throughout the history of the Christian church, there has always been temptations and a drawing away from grace and living by faith to trusting in works, in our good works, and trusting in our knowledge, to promoting legalism and asceticism, and to adding man-made laws and traditions to our faith, most of which, as Paul says in Colossians 2.23, have an appearance of wisdom. They look good. They seem good. They seem right. And these are the dangers of human religion, which the believers at Colossae were being confronted with. There are dangers which have plagued the church throughout history, and there are the same dangers we face today of adding works, of adding tradition, of adding uh, man-made laws and regulations. And in this passage, and here in Colossians 2, 20 verse to 23, the Apostle Paul lists four aspects of human religion which reveal the danger it poses to believers and unbelievers alike. Four characteristics of human religion which consist of man-made laws and traditions. First, the incompatibility of human religion. Incompatibility of human religion in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still in the, alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There's this incompatibility of human religion, of man-made religion, of man-made laws, regulations, traditions. There's an incompatibility with the true religion of Christ, of biblical Christianity. Because all these laws, these traditions, these regulations, they're not able to cause a dead sinner to be made alive. They're not able to cause us to be born again. They're not able to save us. Paul says this. He, um, In a sense, in, in Romans chapter 6, there's this argument as, as he is explaining justification by faith in the true gospel. There, there's, he he kind of recognizes an argument um, coming up to oppose him about um, licentiousness or, or cheap grace or um, living in sin because we've been justified by faith alone and, and we've been saved by grace alone. And in Romans chapter 6, in the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, might, we too might walk in newness of life. See, we're... We're made alive in Christ. We're born again in Christ. We're resurrected from the deadness of 
our unconverted nature. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were made alive together with Christ. Because of that, there's no human tradition, there's no list of rules or regulations or laws that can, um, that can fit, that can be compatible with true biblical Christianity because we're made alive in Christ alone and, and we're made righteous in Christ alone as well. As Paul often, through many of his epistles, he writes regarding um, this aspect of legalism and Jewish tradition that is always, um, and especially in that age, um, assaulted the church. And in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 9, he says this regarding himself, regarding his testimony as a righteous uh, Jew, as a Pharisee. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Human religion, laws, regulations, traditions are incompatible with true religion, with biblical Christianity, with the true gospel. That we are made alive in Christ, we're made righteous in Christ. It's only Christ's righteousness that meets the standard of God's law. And only through Christ can we meet that standard as well. Only by Him imputing and 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 accounting His righteousness to our account, can we be considered righteous? Second, human religion is incompatible with true holiness. It's incompatible with true religion, and it's incompatible with true holiness. Because we're, we're set apart, we're made holy in Christ alone. Yes, we are called to um, work out our salvation, we're called to be holy, we're called to... Um, to turn from sin. Ultimately, only Jesus Christ can do that. Only God can truly make us holy. And Jesus was telling this to his disciples in Mark chapter two, as as uh, the Pharisees, you know, they came and they and and they were saying, your disciples do not fast. They do not obey the tradition of the elders. They do not follow the law. And in Mark chapter 2, they, they come to him and they say, John's disciples come to him and people came to him and they said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wine skins. Basically, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, all the laws and traditions and regulations of Judaism and, the, and the, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant cannot be added to the New Covenant. 
The new covenant fulfills what the old could not. It does what the old could not. It makes us holy. The the old covenant, the, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law could not make us holy. It only exposed our sin. It only exposed our need for holiness. It only exposed the holiness of God, which we failed to meet and we could not meet. So all these things could not be added to the new covenant. Because we're made holy in Christ, in Christ alone. Human religion is incompatible with true holiness. And Paul answers this, this question, um, which is, it's almost a rhetorical question, which is, he raises himself in Romans chapter 7, the, the, the good I want to do, I do not do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he goes on in Romans chapter 8 and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are born again by the Spirit. We are to be continually filled with the Spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit. And we are to walk according to the Spirit. Not according to the flesh. We are not to go back to man-made laws and traditions because they are incompatible with true religion. They are incompatible with true holiness. They cannot make, his whole, make us holy. In his commentary on this passage, um, John McRae writes this, The Colossians declared themselves dead to the influences of the elemental spirits and their intervention in the affairs of man through worship of the elements of the universe. Idolatry and the worship of heavenly bodies were laid aside when they died with Christ and were buried with Him by baptism. They have put off the old pagan body through conversion to Christ and have experienced a circumcision not made with hands. It is not therefore consistent with such a conversion experience for them to be brought back into their sphere of control and live by their rules, which involve certain ascetic practices. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Which brings us to our next point. We've seen the incompatibility of human religion. Now we see, second, the injunctions of human religion. Verse 21-22, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. One commentator, he writes this, Regulations about what may be touched, tasted, or handled suggest that Paul has in mind Jewish regulations about purity. Those who touched an unclean person or ate unclean food were themselves made unclean. They were going back to the Jewish law. And and as we have shared before and and seen before in in this study, that um, two of the main heresies and and, um, false teachings which the Colossians were being confronted with was the Judaizers and and, um, them trying to bring them back into bondage to the Old Testament law. And then there was Gnosticism. And in these two spheres, there was legalism, there was mysticism, 
And there was asceticism, a denial of self, a self-denial of, of the things which God has made, a, a, a obeying man-made laws and traditions to make yourself holy, to make yourself spiritual. And so we see in this, these two verses the injunctions of human religion, or, or, or rather the laws, the dictates, the statutes of human religion. And, and clearly we see these biblical injunctions which are now obsolete. There, there's several injunctions. We see the biblical injunctions which are obsolete, but then there's also the unbiblical injunctions, and then there's the misapplied injunctions that we still uh, force upon others in our current church culture. But first, the biblical injunctions, which are obsolete. The Old Old Testament dietary laws, which the Judaizers were trying to bring the Colossians back into uh, conformity to, to yoke them with it. That, yeah, you are... You are in Christ and you are born again, but you can't can't handle these things. You can't touch these things. You can't taste these things. You can't do this. You can't do that. You must be circumcised. You must follow these festivals. You must keep these Sabbaths. They're being burdened with laws and regulations, traditions, Sabbath-keeping. And there is a sense, even in our day day and age, in our our modern church culture, under the New Covenant, that there are principles from the Sabbath that carry over, such as having a rest, a day of rest, which is in the creative order of setting aside a day of worship, of worshiping on the Lord's Day, and yet these are not laws which we are to foist upon others as a burden to be legalistic about because only Christ fulfilled the law perfectly and he fulfilled the law for us. Even as Jesus Christ told the, the um, Pharisees and Sadducees, he, he had, he had um, more bad things to say about the self-righteous religious leaders than the, um, the immoral sinners and the wretched sinners of his day. He says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 to 11, he says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, that, this defiles a person. That's why we need to be born again. That's why we need a new heart. These externals, they cannot make us holy. They cannot make us right with God. And yet, there is a sense in which there's wisdom in there. And look, their argument, the false teachers in the day and age of the Colossian church, and in our day and age, they say, hey, listen, this is in the Bible. God said this. We, we must obey this. They twist the Scriptures to their own benefit, and they yoke believers with this law. 
that has been done away with in Christ. That we are righteous in Christ. He has fulfilled it. As he said, he, made, he declared all foods clean. And so we see these biblical injunctions which are now obsolete and yet are still being foisted upon believers today. But then there's the unbiblical injunctions, things which come from outside of the Bible, things which come from other religions, the mysticism that has filtered into the church and it happened in the day and age of the the New Testament church in the first century in, in the form of Gnosticism and, and uh, uh, Greco-Roman paganism, of worshiping angels and, and other intermediaries. It came in the form of music as it does today. This uh, seeking a higher spiritual experience. Receiving the second blessing, whatever that is. A second work of grace. This mysticism. It's in our day and age. It comes through worship music. Um, sometimes we, even in many churches, it's not just the, the lyrics through which the heresy comes, but it's just the fact that we want music that makes us feel better. And certainly we should have music that's done with excellence. But it's, it's not so much about what we want. It's what, what pleases God. Music that lifts us up to God is, is not how we feel. It's not about getting a spiritual high. We also see this mysticism that comes in the form of um, personality tests and spiritual gifts in inventories. And it is totally uh, subjective. You want to know what your spiritual gifts are, you just start serving, and then the people of God will tell you whether or not you're good at it. <laughs> That's how you know your spiritual gifts. <laughs> you just, and many of us have a mixture of spiritual gifts. And we're also called to cultivate them, that they get better over time, hopefully. <laughs> but, you know, all sorts of things from. Um, the culture mysticism it enters into the church. One of these things which Paul addresses here is asceticism. Self-denial for the sake of holiness. That's what asceticism is. That you're denying yourself to, uh, of certain uh, comforts and pleasures to show how holy you are. To show how spiritual you are. And, and there's, there's always an aspect of pride. It, it, it doesn't... A lot of times it doesn't start out with pride. Um, it starts out with, with usually a sincere desire to be holy. To, to go off somewhere to escape the corrupting influences of this world. And, and that's, where, that's where it has its appeal. As even Paul says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Because there's so many corrupting influences in the world. And, and we're tempted by these corrupting influences. And it's easy to just say, well, I'll just run away. I'll just isolate myself. Or I'll make a list of rules of don't do this, don't do that, and then I'll be holy. But ultimately, it doesn't work. And ultimately, it provokes the flesh to pride, to spiritual pride and elitism. Paul warned Timothy about this in 1 Timothy 4. He says this, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to 
to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we have these biblical injunctions, these laws from the Old Testament, which are now obsolete because Christ fulfilled the law, and he clearly says in in, in many passages that they are done away with. And then we have these unbiblical injunctions, which come from the culture of mysticism and asceticism, legalism, that we see enter into the church. But um, in our day and age, we have misapplied injunctions. We have injunctions concerning um, spiritual, scriptural um, teachings and biblical commands, principles, which we then easily misapply and we burden other believers with. And there's, there's several of these. I'll just go through a list. And first and foremost, the big one, alcohol, alcohol. The Bible clearly says that drunkenness is a sin. It's clear, crystal clear. We can see um, how drunkenness has destroyed people, has destroyed families, has, in a sense, ravaged our culture. And yet, there's no command within the Bible that says, thou shalt not drink. In fact, I mean, just an honest study of wine in the Bible, will show you that most of the references to wine are positive. It's, in a sense, an indication of God's blessing. And yet, there's still the clear command that drunkenness is a sin. But what do we do? Because we we see all the, the negative influences of drunkenness, And so we say, well, it's just easier to have a blanket rule and say, well, we'll just abstain. And there's, there's certainly wisdom in that. There's great wisdom in that. Because then, then drunkenness becomes a non-issue. Because you're not even touching it. You're not even, there's no appearance of it. But there's no law that says thou shalt abstain. Jesus drank wine. And that, yes, in their day and age, the wine was diluted. But it wasn't diluted so much that the command against drunkenness would be a moot point. You know? If it was diluted so much that you couldn't get drunk, then there would be no command for, <laughs> to and be careful about drunkenness. And, and I, I'm sure I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it before, Baptist preachers waxing eloquently about how Jesus turned water into grape juice. That's, that's not just hermeneutically and exegetically wrong. It's flat out stupid. It's stupid. Because a clear reading of the text will show you. Because the master of ceremonies in John chapter 2, he would not have commented on what he commented about the wine had it been grape juice. And the, the command and the warning about drunkenness still stands. It's almost, so how do we balance these two? We can't make that blanket rule of just abstinence. 
Because that's not in the Bible. Paul. The Apostle Paul told Pastor Timmy to have a little bit of wine. So if it's good enough for Apostle Paul and good enough for Pastor Timmy, but at the same time, we're not to have an appearance of, of evil or immorality or um, license or drunkenness. And there's still the principle of denying yourself liberties in the presence of a weaker brother, not causing a weaker brother to stumble. And so we, we gravitate towards lists and rules because it's easier, because then we don't have to think about it. We just have a list. We just have a blanket rule. But you're adding to Scripture. That's a misapplied injunction. And the same is true for media, entertainment, and recreation. There, there is this biblical command, this biblical principle of separation that we are called to separate ourselves from all things that are unholy and corrupting. And yeah, I'm sure you've heard it and I've heard it before. Um, people in churches where, you know, it's a sin to go to movie theaters. And certainly there's several movies and several things on TV which are corrupting and which I would not watch. I would not... Um, allow my children to watch. I, I would not recommend anybody watch. But to make a blanket statement or a blanket law that you, you must throw away your TV and you can't go to a movie theater is wrong. You can't do that. That's not in Scripture. We, we have to think. And it's easier to have the list of rules so that, you, know, you just give me a list and I'll follow it. Rather than think and, and, and determine what, what God would truly want. Here's another one, spending, giving, possessions. We have clear um, principles, biblical principles about stewardship, uh, 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 warnings about worldliness and materialisms, and, 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 and uh, commands and, and principles concerning our giving. But it's easy to just go to a list. And even the, the Old Testament uh, a guideline of 10%, that was in part a tax to, to the government. That, that wasn't all, that, that was encompassed in the whole theocratic system of Israel. That wasn't just their giving. It, 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 you know, if you want to give 10%, good. But it, that, that's up to you to determine what percentage to give and how much to give and when to give and, and how. And that requires thought. That requires looking at your budget, looking at the things you have. Now, Jesus says when you give, let, make sure you're, you know, do it in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. In, in, in other words, don't overanalyze it. You, you give with a true heart. And yet we can make laws about giving and about spending, about possessions. And we can create a false standard of holiness. Uh, you know, I've heard of several instances where um, pastors, this is especially true for pastors, for ministry workers, about having a new car. Or about a pastor being gifted. Someone gave him a BMW. And, and it wasn't a fancy BMW. It was just like the normal one that is still a nice car. But he said, I can't take that. So I'm a pastor. 
And, and that's wrong. He should be able to receive that gift with gladness. should be able to have a new car. You should be able... God has given you a certain level of material blessings, and it's up to you to determine how to use those, how to steward them, how to give them, um, if you choose to give them or not, to the glory of God. And that takes thought. But it's easier to have a list of rules. Here's another one we see in, in uh, our church culture. Parenting and homeschooling. The homeschooling crowd. And, and for most homeschoolers, they, they don't beat other people over the head that thou must homeschool you know, your kids. But there is a pressure. And certainly, there's so many benefits to homeschooling. And, and as our culture gets worse and worse, and, and it seems as if public school becomes less and less of an option, and, and it seems like homeschool is a much better option, you know, there's, there's a tendency to yoke other believers to those rules, to those man-made traditions and regulations. But it's up to you as a parent to decide how you are to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You are the one that's responsible. And, and quite honestly, you know, I, I went to public school, and I, I remember some kids in public school that it didn't matter what the teacher said, they weren't going to go along with it. They were so strong-willed, they'd debate the teacher. So... Even as corrupting as public school can get, there's some kids that can withstand that corruption and can, um, in a sense, debate the teacher in the classroom. But it's up to each parent to decide how they are going to raise their kid, you know, according to what Scripture commands them. There's another one, you know, dress and grooming in church. Uh, uh, you know, we have the the principles in Scripture of modesty, of being modest. There's also principles that you could, of respectability, of being mature as a person. And I'm sure many of you, you've seen legalism in the church on, on you know, this topic, this subject. That the truly holy people, you know, they wear suits and ties. And we can all see the, the, the danger in that. Now, there's no dress code in church. There's no dress code. But what is happening in our culture now, because um, we, we have, the pendulum has swung to the other side, to where it doesn't matter what you wear. It's just wear flip-flops and pajamas to go to church. And there's, I know there's, there's a church in California. They had a wear your pajamas to church service. There's people, and there's, it's just... No discernment. And for 80-90% of believers, it's not an issue. Because you're somewhere in the middle of the road, you, you have enough discernment, you wear what's appropriate, you know that you go to certain events and you dress appropriately. And it's not an issue, whether legalism or licentiousness. But we can, we can go to one extreme or the other, either make rules or just throw all the rules away or there, there's no cultural norms and it doesn't matter and you know, I show up to church and, you know, yeah, I'm wearing a t-shirt, but it only has one hole in it and you can barely see that spaghetti stain. You know? And, or I've seen people overdressed to church. Ladies wearing a formal evening gown like they're going to some presidential banquet. And you're just trying to, 
you know, get a tra- and and you know, but you know, as far as dress and grooming goes, for for most most Christians, it's it's not an issue. It's the people on the extreme, but we can easily create a list of rules, create dress codes, judge other people, create a, a false standard of holiness according to what we wear. But there is a sense that we should be discerning. You know, church attendance and service, gathering, that, that we, you know, we, you, you can be um, pressured into, you must, you know, attend every gathering of the church, or you must be, um, for some churches that do this, in a small group Bible study. You must do this or that, you know, and if you do all these things, then you're, you're really holy. You know, you should want to gather as much as possible because there, there is a principle of gathering that we are to not forsake the gathering of the saints. But we can then take that too far and say, thou must. You know, you should gather. We, we are commanded to gather, but how much? How frequently? And we all have lives. We get sick. We get ill. We have family situations. We have work situations. But you should want to attend. You should want to attend as much as you can, but we all have life circumstances. And here's one that's, that's very subtle, misapplied injunctions. Very subtle, and we all fall prey, prey to this. The Bible reading plans, journaling, prayer, keeping prayer lists. And there's a sense that our, our sanctification is first and foremost um, through the reading of the Word of God through the understanding of the Word of God. That's how we are sanctified. That's how we grow. But we can yoke ourselves. Usually it's a self-imposed standard. It's usually, we're, we're usually not going around saying, you know, you should read a, the Bible in a year. And, and we're usually not yoking other believers with standards. It's usually ourselves. It's usually we guilt ourselves. And we create, you know, we should read the Bible as much as we can. But, you know, and we're getting to this, you know, the New Year's, and we're, there's probably many of us, most of us will probably commit to a Bible reading plan. But let me just give you a piece of advice. Don't become a slave to the plan. If you miss a day, so what? You miss a day. You just start back up. Or what I, I've learned to do so that I don't guilt myself, I, I put bookmarks in my Bible, and, and I just pick up where I left off. You just, you know, you should enjoy the Word of God and it shouldn't, you shouldn't be a slave to the plan or to your prayer lists. That you have to do so much uh, devotional time. We can become enslaved to these man-made laws and traditions. I remember when I became a new believer and, uh, and uh, I was being discipled by my pastor at the time, the youth pastor of the church. And uh, I came in, I, I just, I, I really wanted to do everything right and be good. And I came in to him, and into his office, and I, I asked him, I said, Pastor, what is a successful Christian? Like what, I was reading a lot of business books at that time. I wanted to be, I was in college, wanted to be a success. And, and so I kind of, in, in a sense, imposed that onto my Christianity. Like how do I, how do I quantify this? How do I judge myself? How do I rank myself? And his wise answer to me, I'm so glad he did this, 
He went to Galatians 5 and he went to the fruits of the Spirit, which is so hard to quantify. <laughs> and it was good for me. He was like, this is, you know, do you have all these? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Work on this. Rather than saying, okay, read your Bible an hour a day, pray a half hour a day, make sure you serve in, in two areas of the church, make sure you, you know, dress this way, you know, all these externals went to the Scriptures. This is what we're supposed to display, the fruits of the Spirit, which start within the heart. Holiness is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the external behaviors. And sometimes we have to make those hard decisions. Should I do this or do that? Should I go here or there? Should I uh, be friends with this person or not? It's easier to default to a list, to have someone make those decisions for us. And so we see in this passage the incompatibility of human religion. We see the injunctions of human religion. And now third, we see the inferences of human religion or the logic, the argument. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All these man-made rules and traditions throughout church history, in the Bible, in our church culture, every single one of them has an appearance of wisdom. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't be passed off. Otherwise, it wouldn't be adopted. It wouldn't be followed. There is an appearance of wisdom. And, and in fact, there is a little bit of truth that there is some wisdom in it. There is some wisdom in abstaining. There's some wisdom in separating from corrupting influences. There, there's a little bit of wisdom in spiritual um, disciplines and rigors and lists. But ultimately, it will not stop the indulgence of the flesh. And, and the wisdom comes in this way. Doing this makes you spiritual. Whatever this is, X, Y, Z, whatever it is, follow this person. Read this book. Follow this discipleship manual. There's wisdom in there. But ultimately, true spirituality is a matter of the heart. It's where our heart is. Words, actions, and behaviors are an indicator of what's in the heart. And right actions, right behaviors can be done with a wrong heart. They can be done in, in self-righteousness, in spiritual pride in spiritual elitism, with a divisive heart, with a bitter heart, with an angry heart, with a heart that says, I'm better than all these other schlubs who don't read the Bible as much as I do, or don't go, you know, or go to places that I don't go to. That's the wisdom. Doing this makes you spiritual. Or, or not doing this will keep you from sinning. And there's some truth in that, especially as a new believer. The, you know, many new believers, and especially if you came out of a background of, of gross sin and iniquity, that as a new believer, you need to, in a sense, set up guardrails. And some of those guardrails are good. Some of those disciplines are good to train you. But they're just training wheels. 
Ultimately, they won't change the heart completely. Ultimately, they won't sanctify you completely. Only Christ will do that. Only a heart that's fixed on Christ and, and worshiping Him and being satisfied in Him. Because all the, the temptations of sin, they offer some sort of short-term pleasure. Whether that's substance abuse or immorality or whatever it may be, there is that, that, um, that temptation of, of um, that promise of pleasure and fulfillment, which sin does, in a sense, give you a short-term fulfillment and gratification. And it's easy to just cut yourself off from, from all um, places, all influences that would tempt you to that. There's wisdom in doing that. But ultimately, you need to work on the heart and the desires that would want that. You, you need a greater desire in Christ, a greater desire of holiness that will, that will, in a sense, push out those lesser desires of sin. There are clear biblical principles and commands of separation, but you know, abstinence and isolation, it cannot destroy the idols of the heart. We can easily trade our idols. I've seen this working in, 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 uh, with rehab ministries and, and substance abuse that someone will quit drinking and then all of a sudden they'll go over to food or to um, pornography or to whatever. They, they can easily trade one idol for the other. In his commentary, Curtis Vaughn writes this. He says, Ascetic rules masquerade as wisdom. They seem on the surface to be reasonable and wise, but what seems to be wisdom is only an appearance of or pretension to wisdom. In reality, these rules are expressions of self-imposed worship. And we have to live according to Christ. In human religion, it's, it's impotent. It's impotent to save. Works cannot save you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, you, you're... you're uh, Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that last phrase, lest any man should boast, that's what we will do with human religion. We will boast. We will exalt ourselves. We will say, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look, look what I performed. Look how good I am. We're called to say, look how good Christ is. That he saved a sinner such as I. And he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Works cannot save you. Human religion is impotent to save, but also works cannot provide lasting assurance. If we base our salvation on our good works, then it will fail. Our assurance is based on the work of Christ alone. On what he did for us. Not what we do for him even if we do great works. Paul said, my best works are as filthy rags, as scuba long. It's, it's, it's rubbish. It's nothing compared to Christ. Human religion is not only impotent to save, it's impotent to sanctify. It, it ultimately cannot stop temptation. It can only put a check against it. And it does work to a certain extent. But, you know, there's, there's stories 
throughout church history of, of monks and ascetics. Of, of St. Jerome was one of them. He, he went out into the wilderness, out into the desert to escape the corrupting influences of the world. And when he went out, he realized after a while that sin went with me. Can't escape it. It's, it's, it's in our flesh. And yet there is a sense where we should separate ourselves from corrupting influences. But separation alone will not make us holy. Human religion cannot stop sin or idolatry. Human religion cannot promote true worship. Where there's no grace, there's no gratitude. Where there's no gratitude, there's no worship. We look to Christ. Christ alone. I like what Kent Hughes says in his commentary on this passage. He says this, Pastor Kent Hughes, The reality is this, In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him we have been made full. But we can lose the benefits of that fullness very easily. We can fall to legalism and its attendant self-righteousness, joylessness and judgmentalism, we can succumb to mysticism and develop a proud elitist spirit that contributes nothing to true worship. We can get into asceticism thinking it will make us more holy when actually it will feed our flesh. The answer to legalism is a continual realization of the grace of Christ. The answer to mysticism is an understanding of how profoundly we are related to Christ. The answer to asceticism is the reckoning that we have died, been buried, and are resurrected with Christ. The answer is where it all began, at the foot of the cross. That Christ came to save sinners such as us. This was Paul's argument to the Galatians and the danger of human religion and the works of the law that they cannot save nor can they sanctify. He told them in Galatians 3, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But he did die. He did come. He did give himself up as a ransom for sinners like us. He, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, to, uh, to redeem a people for himself, to redeem sinners such as us. And we always, constantly need to remind ourselves of that. And this is why we come to the table, to celebrate his sacrifice, to drink the cup and to eat the bread, which he says is his body and his blood. And we remember his body and his blood that was uh, broken for us, that was spilt for us to atone for our sins. We need to remember him always, constantly, to meditate upon him, to live for him. One Puritan, he writes this, and I will close with this. He says, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. Tormented that I might be comforted. Made a shame that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness that I might have eternal light. 
My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might forever live. Because of his sacrifice, we honor him with our lives, with our words, with our actions, with our behaviors. We strive for holiness because of who he is and what he has done. And because he has promised that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That he will make us holy. He will sanctify us completely. And so we come to this table to do what he commanded us to remember him, to remember his sacrifice as a memorial. And this table is for all those who have been born again, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and those redeemed, those true believers who are not walking in clear, unrepentant sin. There is a sense in which we are called to examine ourselves and we are called to confess our sins and to prepare our hearts before we come to this table, but there's also a sense in which we will not be able to confess every single sin. But if there is clear, unrepentant, outward sin, then we should not partake. But if we are broken by our sin, and if we are confessing our sin, and if we are striving for holiness, then this table is for us, because we remember that only His sacrifice paid the debt of our sin for us. And only through him can we be cleansed. So um, I will pray, and then the men will dismiss you to gather the elements, and then we will partake together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commands. We thank you most of all for salvation in Jesus Christ. It is only through him that we can be made righteous. Only through him that we can have a relationship with you. Only through Him can we be um, redeemed and escape the punishment of hell which we all deserve. Lord, we thank You. We praise You. Thank You for these words. Please sink them deep in our hearts and minds that they would bear fruit of holiness and guide us as we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.